This section will talk about disorders in the endocrine system for children. Children have a little bit of a different endocrine system than adults because of course they are still developing, but their system manages growth and development, sexual development, glucose levels, the energy and how they store it, also their response to stress. So the two main things that we're going to focus on is diabetes and also um, other issues such as transgender, diabetes 1 and 2. The pancreas is one of the major things that we look at in children who are having issues. Um, and the pancreas, of course, is responsible for insulin production. And so when we have a child who's having issues with diabetic signs and symptoms, we start to look at their pancreas. Also, um, kids who have cystic fibrosis will also have issues with their pancreas due to the mucus plugging. And that's just an aside from something that you've already learned. Um, diabetes mellitus, of course, is characterized by um, partial deficiency of the hormone insulin. It is one of the most common endocrine disorders of childhood. A lot of times we will see that this happen, signs and symptoms and presentation of patients who are late school age or early adolescence. Two major kinds, as I said before, would be your diabetes type 1, in which um, the body does not produce insulin at all. And then you have your diabetes type 2, which is insulin resistance. We are seeing an uptick in kids who have diabetes type 2 because of um, increase in obesity and poor diet. Diabetes type 1 is hereditary. It is a familial situation. Um, and as I said, it usually happens with early um, adolescence. And it is the most common in childhood. We would see different signs and symptoms with these children. It could be just kind of things that happen off and on, or it could be things that have been happening for a while. And by the time this child presents and is really sick, their blood sugar levels are very high. Um, the three things that we will see is polyuria, which is increased urination. You'll see polydipsia, which would be increased thirst, and polyphagia, which is increased hunger. You also might have the parent talk about, the parent or caregiver talk about this patient has lost weight or they are fighting infections off and on. Most commonly it would be some type of upper respiratory infection. And then, um, as I said, there could be a parent or a sibling who also has this condition. The school might complain of the patient having issues with behavior. And um, I call that being hangry because they are hungry a lot of the time. They may, this child might have issues where they are um, having accidents at school because of the polyuria. And as well, they might have issues with having visual disturbances such as blurred vision or maybe even double vision. So now they can't concentrate on what they're supposed to be doing in the classroom and they start to act out. Type 2 diabetes, as I said, usually happens with children who are obese, and that is um, considered 
insulin resistance. We have seen this more often in the patient population of African American, Native American, and Hispanic or Latino populations. And the reason why we think this is happening is because the kids live in areas where we call um, it food deserts, maybe inner city kids or um, other areas where they really don't have an ac good access to a good grocery store with fresh produce and stuff. Lots of them have maybe bodegas or um, by the time they get the fresh produce, it's not very good. It has lost some nutritional value because it is almost spoiled. And then um, because of their economic struggles, they may just be depending on using their EBT cards to go to fast food restaurants or the parent or caregiver could be purchasing things that don't really have a good nutritional value in order to make the money stretch for that month. So um, these children may or may not require insulin. Sometimes we will just start them on um, an oral medication and then they do very well. And we also will talk to them about weight loss and improving their diet and things such as that. So I wanted to bring your attention also to the slide that says type 2 diabetes because um, we do see what we call a metabolic syndrome in women. And this is usually women who are older than 35 and it sometimes can mimic um, polycystic ovarian syndrome as well. And so this puts them at an increased risk for diabetes because their lab work might show that they have high triglycerides and low HDLs. And then... Um, they have a sedentary lifestyle and their finger stick blood sugar might be consistently over 126. Some other theories or etiologies about the causes of diabetes type 1 in children are also, are, um, include the fact that there could have been a viral infection prior to this child showing symptoms of having diabetes type 1. And also we know that it is an autoimmune disease and it's hereditary. So these just could be a few of the factors that we notice with children with type 1 diabetes. And then um, a couple of the mnemonics to remember is if the patient is hot and dry, that means their sugar is high. If they are cold and clammy, that would mean that they would need some candy. This is something that we should be able to teach early on the parent or the caregivers and also the patient would need to have the school be aware of the fact that they are diabetic and that would include the school nurse and all of the personnel who are around the student so in case they have some type of issue they can be seen usually the endocrine clinic sends a kit to the school that includes extra insulin glucose tablets and then a pathway of what to do if the child has certain symptoms. The other thing that we also talk about is getting the patient a medic alert bracelet. So if the child is ages four to 14, they can get a medic alert bracelet for free and either a bracelet or a tab to go on their shoe, just so if something happens to them, we are aware of their condition. A lot of times a baby could be um, diagnosed with hypoglycemia, and this could also lead a little bit later on to type 1 diabetes. Or maybe this baby 
was born of a diabetic mother and we're checking them for hypoglycemia. Things that we will look for is if the baby is very, very restless, very hungry, has tachycardia, is diaphoretic. So that would mean that the baby, um, the mnemonic for that is tired. If a patient goes into ketoacidosis, this would be something that we really need to monitor and take care of proficiently. So a lot of patients who are diabetic are prescribed or it's suggested that they keep urine sticks on hand. So they, if they have a sick day or they're just not feeling well, they can um, call in and the physician might ask or the nurse at the office might ask, were there ketones in your urine dipstick? And then from there, we would um, talk about what type of treatment we would do with them as far as it could be sliding scale insulin or checking their glucose more often, things such as that. Um, the other thing that we would notice with this child is that they would have um, a, a weird smell to their breath. It might be fruity or just kind of um, metabolic smelling. So that's one of the situations where it was kind of give us a clue that something's going wrong with this patient. If the patient has small respirations, which is like they're just breathing, they're trying to get rid of this CO2, so they're breathing really fast, um, this could be a sign of trouble. Other clinical signs that we would note, maybe from history and physical or just looking at them in assessment, we could ask questions to the parent or the caregiver is, um, have they lost weight? Have they seemed more tired than normal? Are they more thirsty than usual? Have they been wetting the bed at night? Or, they, or do you hear them getting up to go to the bathroom a lot at night? Has there been a wound that hasn't healed properly? It's taken it a very long time to heal. Or have you noticed them at certain moments during the day having an increased respiratory rate, almost panting? So DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, for children is a definite emergency. It's also an emergency for adults as well, but for children, we really, really need to move quickly. And so um, we get them to the emergency department as fast as possible, and an IV would be started, and they would be rehydrated with normal saline because they are, at this point, very dehydrated. We would look at their um, electrolytes once we draw some labs on them and we would see that they are acidotic and that they have an imbalance in their electrolytes. So we need to correct this. So once we rehydrate, rehydrate them with the normal saline, we would draw more labs and see where they are. Um, and then we would hang maintenance IV fluids or whatever we need to correct the um, acidosis and the electrolyte imbalance. If they are not treated promptly, this could cause them to go into a coma. And if that isn't, if they aren't treated properly from there, it could lead to their demise. So there is a slide about diabetic ketoacidosis. And um, what we need to do with this patient is hydrate them. Once they're hydrated, give them some insulin. And then we also collect correct the electrolyte imbalance by electrolyte replacements. So the other, there's one more slide that gives you complications of diabetes mellitus. And this is why it's so important for the parent or the caregiver to bring the child in for follow-up appointments 
and to keep regular yearly appointments such as eye exams, um, checking in if they need to check in with the urology department for following kidney situations. Maybe they have GI issues from gastroparesis, so they would check in with them, teaching them about managing the hypo or the hyperglycemic conditions, as well as looking at their mental health. Are they having issues with depression? This is something new that we've been addressing with patients who have diabetes because it is a lot to try to plan out the meals and make sure you get the per the um, right portion of carbohydrates. Also to make sure that they are having snacks on a regular basis. And sometimes this means a whole lifestyle change for the entire family. So certain foods are cooked and the whole family enjoys those. But also thinking about those who are underserved and knowing that it is more expensive for them to try to get the proper nutritional um, meals put together. So as long as they are forthcoming with the information that they are having a struggle with the meal preparation and things like that, there are resources out there to help them. So how do we manage type 1 diabetes? In the older children, they are... Um, once we know that they're very stable and that they have a good understanding of this disease, they are allowed to get an insulin pump. And then once they have this insulin pump, they are taught the proficiency of it. And a lot of them are very knowledgeable about their insulin pump. They might um, be able to teach others about their insulin pump. And they know that when they are at lunch or having a snack, They'll do a finger stick blood sugar, and then they dial in the amount of insulin they'll need for the carbohydrates that they're about to um, take on. Other kids will have injections, and then there are um, some kids who go ahead and have the continuous glucose monitoring so that they aren't sticking their fingers so often. And a lot of these newer models of the insulin pump and the continuous glucose monitoring have Bluetooth capability so that they can download the data to the physician's office or it has um, other things on it where it would potentially alert maybe on a smartwatch that um, the cartridge needs to be changed or maybe the patient's glucose has dropped out of normal range. Other things that we look at with the patients also is um, getting labs on a regular basis and that would include the hemoglobin A1C, which measures the um, amount of glucose over time. I believe it's about three months. Other things that we look at too is we have nutrition involved with this patient and um, they give help on how to do proper proportions on meals, how to count up carbohydrates, what are safe and good choices such as eat this and not that, and um, things to get for snacks. If we have a child who is a baby, and say they're on breast milk or formula, we talk to the mom about um, especially how to store the breast milk to make sure it still contains its proper nutritional value. And um, we tell everyone who has a diabetic child to make sure that they have an emergency kit or a few emergency kits this kit would go to school with the child and stay there. It would also be a kit that you would have in the car 
or in the child's backpack in case something happened or in case that they are having to evacuate from their house quickly, they can carry that kit with them. And this kit would include emergency glucose tablets. It could be um, a hard candy or a juice box for older kids, anything that they could use to um, help them if their blood sugar drops very low and also potentially extra insulin or an extra pen um, for the insulin. The other thing is we teach the parents and the families never to skip insulin dosing. So if they are sick, maybe the child is vomiting or has a lot of diarrhea, this is when they'll need to call in to the endocrine office and talk with the nurse or maybe the physician will call them back to um, understand how they need to adjust the insulin. So there are certain sick day protocols where the insulin may go on sliding scale or things such as that. And then um, if the child is very, very sick and getting dehydrated, it may warrant a visit to the emergency department for IV hydration um, and then other insulin doses to help the child become back into stable. Um, and as I had said before, DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis is a life-threatening emergency for children. So we need to get them in and seen about as soon as possible. One of the things that happens with um, DKA is if the child's glucose is extremely high, it may lead to cerebral edema, which could cause um, lifelong damage to the brain, or it could potentially end up causing the child to pass away. And then the next slide I give you is types of insulin. And also, um, I talk about the onset, the peak, the onset, and um, how to use those types of insulins. They have newer insulins on the market now. Some of them last up to 48 hours. Some of them um, are, I'm sorry, up to 42 hours. Some of them are very quick acting, and they have different forms. You have the um, inhaled insulin which is a very quick acting insulin. And then you have your long acting um, injections, which are 16 to 24 hours. And then you have your ultra long acting injections, which last, which last up to 42 hours and are given only once a day. Other things that we look at is um, the clinic would follow this child for a very long time and get to know them and the family and um, support them as much as possible. So that would include, as I said, um, supporting them about meal planning, also supporting them about medications and medication changes and insulins and things such as that, and checking in on them, making sure they have what they need for the emergency preparedness kit, and having um, open communication with the parents and talking to them about when the child is in school, things to um, anticipate for that. One slide I have is, um, it gives you a reference to the Diabetes Food Hub, and that just gives you kind of a roundabout information. Say you were planning to take someone out to dinner who is diabetic, and they could look at this website and see what the recommendations are for a good choice for healthy meal for them 
and then it talks about portions and things such as that. Um, also, we teach, of course, the patient and the parent and the caregiver how to manage episodes of hypoglycemia where their blood sugar is low or hyperglycemia. We talk to them about um, how to keep good hygiene, how to keep good records of their blood sugar so that when they do come in for a follow-up appointment, they were, are, we're able to look at where the um, blood sugars are. Are they highs? Are they lows? And then um, injection sites are very important too. It's very important to um, do rotating sites for the injections. And um, as I said before, supporting the family as much as possible. For nursing, we also, you know, look at the knowledge deficit, especially if this is a newly diagnosed child. Um, there's, of course, is going to be knowledge deficit about management of this disease. And so we um, educate as much as possible. And even when we see them again, we check in on them and make sure they have a good, complete understanding of what's going on um, as far as things about uh, hypoglycemia and um, insulin administration and things such as that other things that are in the future some of these have already been approved by the food and drug administration other things are um, waiting to be approved would be um, one of the devices that you wear that has um, a consistent um, basal rate of insulin going into the patient's body and then as I talked about before you have your smart monitors basically that are continuous glucose monitors. So that's all I have right now for that section. Next topic is phenylketonuria, also known as PKU, which is an inborn era of metabolism. And these children have to be monitored very carefully. We do a lot of diet modifications with them. And um, it is the inability of the liver to produce the enzyme needed to break down essential amino acid phenylalanine. So um, the phenylalanine will accumulate in the central nervous system and this could cause the child to have seizures and um, other chronic issues. So we want to make sure that we modify the diet so that they will not have a buildup of phenylalanine in their system. How do we find out that this child is a child who has PKU? We would do a newborn screening test about um, 48 hours after birth and this is the test that's sent off to the state and you know with various other things that we test the child for and um, sometimes we may get a false negative and then we will retest the child in seven to ten days the big thing to remember about this is that the dietary modifications are no meat no nuts, no dry beans, no eggs, no dairy products. So basically what they're left with that they can eat would be cereals, fruits, and vegetables. And we monitor their lab work on a regular basis. If they aren't doing well, if they get toxic levels of buildup of phenylalanine in their system, as I said, they could start to have seizures. A lot of times these babies will have an odd or musty body odor. They could have developmental delays. They may have issues with behavior and also they could potentially have skin rashes. And they look 
Some of the kids look like they have albinism because they'll have like the platinum blonde hair, wide spaced teeth. They have um, eczema a lot and their failure to thrive. They may be very irritable and hard to console. They might be hypertonic as far as their muscles. And um, a lot of times we'll notice this by about three months of age. The kid will have issues with vomiting and not being able to handle formula. But hopefully we would have caught this before they get three months of age. So we could have done already the dietary modifications. Also in the, some of the older kids, they might, we might notice um, a smaller head. They could have um, stunted growth, as I said, developmental issues with learning. They would have very light blonde hair and light blue eyes. So these are other things to look out for with this child. Um, diagnostically, I talked about the newborn screening and treatment is just basically we're restricting the phenylalanine in their diet. So they are given specific special formulas and special um, snacks and supplements and things like that. So um, the phenylalanine diet, the main source, as I said, and I'm going to repeat this again, would be vegetables, fruits, and starches, and then other phenylalanine-free protein supplements to help with their growth and development. If the mom is breastfeeding, we have her restrict protein and aspartame in her diet. Older children, it's really hard to get them to understand that they can't just eat all the things that their peers eat. So they may have issues with that and they, there may be sneaking food from uh, school lunch or whatever. So it's just very important to make sure that they understand that their condition is very serious. So um, we'll have them on various supplements, as I said before, and then um, encourage foods that they can eat, like the vegetables, fruits, starches, cereals, and breads. Maybe make it, you know, cut them into little hearts or something like that to make it make them feel a little bit um, interested in the food. And a lot of these parents will send school lunch instead of relying on the um, lunch system to give their kid the food because they're worried about the child getting into something that is not recommended for their diet. So food sources, as I said before, the infants would be on a specific formula and then the children have specific snacks and supplements that they would use. For nursing, it's very important to talk to the parents about what um, is going on with the newborn screening and what the result of this was. A lot of parents are going to be very, very upset and we have to talk to them about um, how to manage this disease or disorder. So we would give them a community referral. Also, um, the nutritionist would be involved and help them manage how to get the formula and how to get the other supplements that they'll need. And then we send the parents for genetic counseling because it's very likely that maybe um, their future children after this child would potentially have this condition. And then we talk to them about the importance of doing their follow-up labs for the, these children as well. There's a film I, that I put in here about um, living with PKU 
and it's um, an adult talking about how it has affected their life. My next subject is congenital hyper, hypothyroidism, sorry. So that means hypo means that the thyroid is underdeveloped or not functioning properly. Children born with this problem may have an enlarged tongue. They, are, um, they may have facial edema or their eyelids might be um, a little bit edematous and kind of protruding. We will notice the infant as having a thickened tongue. So this would cause them to have a speech delay and they would work with the speech therapist about this. And also we would notice that they will have weakness in their muscles and we have trouble regulating their temperature. And why um, would this infant, would this happen with an infant? Sometimes if the mother is on Synthroid or levothyroxine for her thyroid issues, then this causes this problem with the child. When, when the, once the child is born. Um, the other thing is that it could be something that runs in the family or it could just be that the child was not, the thyroid didn't develop during fetal growth or it's absent. Clinically, as I talked about, this child might this baby might present with a large tongue, have a very large fontanelle, um, may have an umbilical hernia would have jaundice that's very hard to treat, be, be very hypotonic, um, have issues with constipation, have issues with cool extremities. So, you know, this baby will be bundled in multiple blankets to keep the baby warm. You may see issues with bradycardia. And if we don't treat this infant in, in a timely manner, they could end up with a developmental delay as well. So the... Um, chart next is a chart about hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism and I put these two side by side because if we were to start this infant on Synthroid which is a lifelong medication that they'll need to take they may have to have dose, do, the dose adjusted because it may send them into signs and symptoms of hyperthyroidism. So how would we diagnose this infant? Of course with the newborn screening and then if that comes back as positive, we would do um, scans of the thyroid and maybe possibly a um, biopsy of the thyroid to see um, if there's any functioning thyroid tissue going on at all. Medically, we have to talk to the parent or the caregiver about using th the thyroid replacement therapy, which would be Synthroid and that it is lifelong and that they cannot skip doses or anything like that. Um, and it's very important to call in refills in a timely manner and also to bring the child in for follow-ups as necessary. For nursing, we follow these children um, with their height, weight, and growth development and are they meeting developmental milestones. And we'll talk to the parents about um, the medication that they're taking, if they're having any issues with that, if such as getting the medication refilled, or um, are they having issues with the child taking the medication so that we can educate and reteach them about that. Other things that we talk about is that um, signs and symptoms for the parents to look out for if the child is very tired or if they're throwing the medication up once they take it, things like, such as that you know, when to call the physician. Um, other things that we talk to them about is um, 
that if the child is on this medication and they're having sleep disturbances or behavioral changes, things such as that, um, that it seems like when you're holding the child, you can feel the heart beating really fast. These are things to report to the physician's office so that medications can be adjusted. I am not going to go over growth hormone deficiency. I'll leave you to read on that on your own. Um, it is not, um, and that and diabetes insipidus are not something that I will be testing you on um, or transgender youth, but I would just like to go over this a little bit because trans transgender is a trending topic in pediatrics. A lot of hospitals are um, not putting sex on the patient's um, medical records or if the patient wishes, they um, can put how the patient identifies. If it's a male and, and the male prefers to be identified as female, um, they may put gender preferred or something such as that. And also honoring that um, this patient has told you they want to be called this name. So it could be James that is actually officially on the medical record, but maybe James prefers to go by Ellie. So um, those are things that we are addressing in pediatrics. And we also have to be very cognizant. It could be causing a family disturbance. Maybe the parents aren't on board with this child um, living as transgender. So just trying to provide as much support as we can to both the parent and the child. Um, Radies does have a clinic that helps children who are in the process of becoming um, transgender youth and they have the whole team involved. It could be social work. It could be psychiatry. It would be endocrine in case the child is receiving hormones. Um, also, they could be worked up for surgery once they're a certain, of a certain age. Radies has done some um, female to male uh, upper transition where they remove the breast tissue. And then the child, once they are... Um, 18, they go to the University of San Diego for the full um, sexual or sexual orientation surgery. So um, this is something that's very important and also making sure that the child can have hormones and they're managing the hormone therapy and doing well with that and that they don't stop it. Say if you're a female transitioning to a male, you're getting hormones to stop your menstrual cycle. And if you miss doses when you're supposed to be on them, then that would cause your menstrual cycle to start again. And it could be very embarrassing if that was to happen and people um, thought the whole time that you were living as a male. The one thing that we do have to focus on with children who are going transgender is their mental health. Uh, they're at increased risk for suicide attempts or suicide ideations. They also have depression, sleep disorders, um, anxiety disorders. They get bullied at school a lot. So um, this is when we would have to provide support to them. And then um, also, if the child is under 18, they must have consent for medical treatments, including hormone therapy. And then... Um, understanding that they don't have gender reaffirming surgical procedures until they reach a certain age. Also, um, we support the family. We 
give them resources for the community and making sure that the insurance coverage is um, proper. If not, there are other ways that the family and the child can get insurance coverage for certain treatments as well. And then there are some resources on the last page of this slideshow.